It's that simple. This is a movie that probably is not for everyone. If you like it, I think it's a really strong, satisfying, complex, interesting movie. If you don't respond to it, it's probably a big pain in the ass for you. Hi, I'm Daryl. And I'm Petros. And welcome to episode 10 of Getting Defoe You, where from heaven's gate to the present day, join us as we get to know Willem Defoe in this dedicated Defoe podcast. Here's the thing, I can't believe it. It's episode 10 already. It's the end of the season already. Here we are. Here we are. We're 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 over a hump. We are we are over a we're, we've hit a milestone, Daryl. We are we are well nearly there. The listeners are about to embark on a journey of our final episode of season one. What a what a what a how are you feeling about everything, Daryl? It sounds very cliche to, to say. I don't want to sound like we're patting ourselves on the back too much, but I think we've put out a good show here. I think we've had uh, a delightfully varied. Season, it's all been building to Antichrist. For the eagle-eared listener, you'll know this was my first time going into this one, so, oh boy, did we have some thoughts, did we have some discussions. What a way to go out, and, you know, we have, I think it's fair to say, the perfect guest for this episode as well. We have Rebecca um, McCallum from the amazing Talking Hitchcock podcast uh, to come talk about all things antichrist with us and i must preface before we get into this episode as well i was close to losing my voice during this record so i don't sound like this i sound like a goblin who has just crawled <laughs> out from under a bridge that's trolls isn't it sorry <laughs> chaos <laughs> reigned um, on you in uh in, in more ways than one this episode but we have i think it's fair to have a really really brilliant discussion about this one with um, talked about the, the meaning behind this film. As I've said, we're diving into this being the first time I saw this as well. Uh, the, the what all the the symbolism is. It's just um, one of those discussions that where my brain felt like it was just firing on cylinders. There were cogs turning, and you know, it's also another thing that we've been mentioning. Uh, you know, as a joke, but also seriously, this episode. We're talking about Defoe's cock as well. Who oh, we? it's there! It's there! It's there in <laughs> all of its glory. Uh, yeah, this is this is where the famous quote that you would have heard. I, I, I don't know, for eager listeners, they may have they may have done a tally. If you have, please get in touch with us <laughs> on all the socials, which is at getting uh, at Defoe you Pod. May I say so? Yeah, hit us up on there. Um, but yeah, you 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 may know that we've mentioned uh, the quote that Willem Dafoe has a confusingly large cock and this is the this is the nexus point of that quote from the director Lars oh, von Trier. Yes. Oh yes indeed so we're very happy to go out on such um, a banger of a Dafoe film in the Dafoe filmography as well oh. and as Petros mentioned in there um, if you've seen Antichrist get in touch with us because we're very keen to know exactly what you're thinking we're on a number of different socials. Uh, Petros, where exactly 
would their socials be? Oh, I'll, I'll rail them out for you again. So there is Instagram, TikTok, Freds, uh, and uh, maybe somewhere else by now. Who knows? Uh, all at DefoeUPod, or drop us an email, which is DefoeUPod at gmail.com. And we want to hear as well your questions. Between seasons, we want to do a mailbag episode. So if you have any weird, wonderful, and wacky questions that you want to ask us about Defoe, or just life in general, hit us up at DefoeUPod pod at gmail.com one last thing daryl before we get this episode rolling mm-hmm. for the, the the folk emotion train heads off to eden um have you seen that lars von trier has put out a video requesting someone to be his partner slash muse have you have you seen this i saw this i saw some people tweeting about it um a lot of people are replying are we applying I've, 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 are we we thrown our, our metaphorical hats and hogs in the ring here. I I'm game if you are. If he's up for a frapple, I'm a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? A bit of a season ten treat. Why not? Here we go. Here we go. So on on the the flip side of this season, you may find out. Come season two, we are now living in Denmark with Lars von Trier. <laughs> Well, you know, lots to look forward to in season two in the coming days. So uh, keep your eyes, ears, and all your senses on the socials as well. But with that all said and done, let's get into it. Let's get into the season one finale. It is Antichrist. We will see you on the other side. Enjoy. Ta. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. This week it is time to discuss the 2009 experimental, psychosexual, art house horror drama Antichrist. Defoe stars as he, a psychiatrist who along with his grieving wife retreat to a cabin in the woods following a devastating loss. Helping us get to know Defoe a little better this week and see if this movie is a walk in the woods or just have you begging for Christ is writer, author and host of the Talking Hitchcock podcast, Rebecca McCallum. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and how the devil are you doing today? Chaos reigns. Chaos reigns, baby. (laughs) Say less. Say less. (laughs) <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, and um, I'm so I'm so happy to be here to discuss this film. I think there was a little bit of a campaign on behalf of the Ghouls over yeah. at Ghouls Magazine for me to be here. Yes. I literally just messaged them in our group WhatsApp chat to say I'm going on to talk about Antichrist and Willem, and yeah, they were all very happy. <laughs> yeah, so many people have been like, it has been, it has been like a, a, it has been so heartening to see. Just be like, there's one person you need to speak to. It's like these almost these just w- one. W- There's only one person that wants to speak about this yeah, film, yeah, and it's yeah. me. <laughs> I felt like Willem Dafoe with all these all these women walking towards me. Like, what are they going to do? Like, we've got to get Rebecca on the podcast. Watch out! I'm coming for you. <laughs> And now here, here we all are. We, we we were sort of saying this um, off record that we feel like we have perhaps the most scholarly person to talk about this film that we could sort of um, ever ask for, really. So we certainly feel um, in a safe pair of hands. But obviously, before we dive deep into this film, and uh, oh boy, is there a lot to talk about in Antichrist? When we kick off these episodes, we're always quick, uh, always keen to know, especially with the new guests. How well do you know? 
Defoe, Rebecca McCallum. So by that, we ask, if you cast your mind back, do you recall your first Willem Defoe film? Do you know how many you've seen? What are your general views uh, on the man who has brought us to this podcasting madness today? Well, first things first, I have the biggest crush ever on Willem, so... Yes! Who doesn't? I mean, what's not to like? But um, it was this film, really, that we're talking about that it was what really got me into really my Defoe obsession. I'd seen him in a few other films, but I'd not consciously gone out to sort of thumb through his work. So what actually, it did make me cast my mind back because I did a bit of a trial and I realised that when I was in history class, I'd probably seen Mississippi Burning. So that might have been my very first (laughs) introduction. But yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of his of his work, you know, from things like American Psycho, where he kind of just does those little cameos. And I always think he's so memorable, even when he's not the lead role to things like, you know, Shadow of the Vampire, Autofocus, I love. So yeah, I'm Boondock Saints as well. I'm a huge fan and I love... I love that he he mixes up his work, you know, he's got the sort of theatrical side of him and then the sort of like the big budget movies and I, I like that and I like seeing what he brings to those different projects. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I think as me and Petros are finding out here, as you say there, the range that this man has, you know, he's he's known i mean let's be honest he people think of him as the green goblin and uh we'll get to his turn as the green goblin in due course don't you worry about it but i think certainly what i'm finding out you know certainly throughout this first season as well is i think range is the best word for it every film that we've covered so far this season has been there's been quintessential defoe in there but it's all been so different yeah i mean almost what is quintessential defoe i think they're what I really enjoy about his performances is that he always goes slightly offbeat or just does something you don't expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he said it in interviews and what I think think is fascinating about his performances is he like gives himself over to the director and like you kind of see it in the fact that like, directors want to work with him over and over again. Like I think the film we're talking about today is uh, him and Lars von Trier's second time working together, right? Uh, they go on to do, I think, Nymphomaniac 2 and he's in the kingdom, like new, the new series of the kingdom. So yeah, there's like four time returns. You mentioned Autofocus, Paul Schrader. There's like tons of films, Abel Ferrara. It's just yeah. like, and the fact he kind of just, yeah, he just slots himself in. He's like, oh, well, if I live in there a while, like I, I, I get to, I get to, I get these confines, but I get to experiment with it, which I think is like really great to kind of, I don't know, see him. And he, yeah, yeah, I think... Uh, him and Lars von Trier are kind of a good a good fit, but we'll get more into that in a bit. Yeah, he seems to like feel an attraction towards working with those auteurs, and I think he responds to to being able to go like you said into those experimental spaces. Because like I remember, I I had a a book about his work with a, a group called the Worcester Group, which is mm-hmm. like an experimental uh, yeah. theatre group in New York, and reading about that. So I think he's an actor that enjoys playing. I think, and I don't think he comes with a lot of preconceived notions. I think he really enjoys sort of just like you say, experimenting in the moment and that that really transfers on screen yeah definitely and i think first and foremost i need this book on the wooster group i feel like an absolute charlatan that i don't have this <laughs> i was literally just putting my notes remember to ask rebecca what the name of that book is <laughs> <laughs> we'll, write, we'll write it in the show notes for the post record what is this book so come season two oh we're going to be so prepared how we've done a first season it's absolute miracle <laughs> speaking of things that we need to know 
let's focus on the film here because it's time to go to one of my favorite portions of any episode. Petros, got a fastball coming for you because I need to know those de facts and those de figures. Well, I got some de facts and some de figures for you. Huskiest of hustle voices that I can master. So, Antichrist is directed by Lars von Trier. Written by Lars von Trier. The film stars Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe. This film was released the 20th of May 2009. The budget is 3.5 million and with a box office return of 7.4 million dollars currently has a 6.5 on IMDb and a Rotten Tomato score of 54% off of 180 reviews. The audience score is currently 55% with over a staggering 25,000 reviews. The critic consensus is gruesome, explicit and highly controversial. Lars von Trier's art house horror, though beautifully shot, is no easy ride. Our first Defoe sighting is at 30 seconds. We open on Defoe, and not long after, we see his dick. His first line of the film is, Hey, how are you? And those are the facts and the figures. Wonderful stuff. As husky and as beautifully delivered as I could possibly have hoped for. <laughs> so a slightly more expansive synopsis on Antichrist. After the accidental death of their son, a couple withdraw to a woodland cabin hoping to repair their troubled marriage. Once nature takes its course, though, things soon start to go from bad to much, much worse. And by that, I mean scissors. Now, in terms of Antichrist, as we sort of touched on at the start, um, Rebecca, I don't know that anyone has seen this film as often as you have. <laughs> So we would ask, in terms of Antichrist, uh, do you recall sort of the first time you saw this film and what your what your first impressions of this movie were coming out of it all over the place? <laughs> this film will do that to you, so. I watched it again today, and I'm just I'm rattled. Yeah. Oh wow! So you're you're pretty fresh off it. Is this both your first times to watch uh, it in prep for this pod? Not not mine. No no no. Well it. We've we've kind of been building to this all season, actually. This is <laughs> this a, is my it's a climax. First. No pun intended. Oh yeah, a, it's a bloody climax. It's a bloody climax. Um, it's my first time watching it. I did rewatch it today, um, just to sort of keep it fresh in the mind because I've got a, a memory of a goldfish. But you know, I, I you know I don't want to spoil what my first reactions were. We'll sort of get in, get into those as we go across this film. But um, sure. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> It, it was kind of interesting for me though is that like i think my first watch of this was when it first came out on physical media and like it was i don't know i was like trying to think when how old i would have been like 18 19 so i would have been a bit more like watching it from that like oh i've heard it's got some real grotty stuff in there some real like grim stuff not really like watching yeah. it through like any kind of critical or like yeah looking deep, below the surface of the kind of grime and grot and horror of it all and like yeah not not getting into it so i, I like to think i i've come out here with fresh eyes yeah and so um the first time i saw antichrist was at my local independent cinema when it came out amazing i actually remember i've got a strong memory of seeing the trailer at that same cinema beforehand and just feeling like oh that I've never seen a trailer like that before. Something there is really capturing my attention. So yeah, saw it at the cinema and just felt completely pulled in. Mm. And 
just like you, people talk a lot about, you know, films where it was my life before this film and my life after. For me, oh. like Antichrist is that film. Um, <laughs> I know, yeah. I know, I'm certifiable. Right. And from then on, so it was it was on for five nights, I think, and I went back every night to the cinema to watch it. I took whoever I could, um, <laughs> whoever would come, and then bribed them with cake and coffee. You know, it sort of calmed their nerves afterwards with cake and coffee while they I think reevaluated friendships and things like that um <laughs> <laughs> I think for me like you asked about first impressions and I think you know for me I, again it was just that immediate pull into another world you know it's such a beautiful film I love those like dream sequences and I think as well as a horror fan I'm someone who's always looking for films that really engage me emotionally and take me to places it's like a lot of horror for me of late has just not really hit and I remember with this like immediately it hit and you know it challenged my emotions I love I love the juxtaposition between the beautiful and the horrific that this film has it feels like as well it's a huge landscape of a film right with many vast emotions but there's also like a deep intimacy to this film Mm -hmm. as well you know I I really feel like it's very theatrical it's got the two actors and the chapters and that you know I enjoy that element of it as well it's it's also very poetic and enigmatic and I think and I suppose we'll probably get into you know the response to the film I think what a lot of people have struggled with is that it's almost it's not it's not easy to categorize and it's not for me it's it's more of like a film that takes you through mood and feeling as opposed to character and plot and Mm -hmm. I think everybody will take something different from this film there's no like finite answer to it and I remember hearing when I started to get like obsessed with the film I remember hearing Defoe talk about it as a meditation on grief Mm. and how it takes you to these dark places and I, I enjoy that as well and how allegorical the film is and I think, you know, people try and pick it apart and justify different things. But for me as well, it, it helped me with like mental health at the time. You know, the portrayal of Charlotte's character going from this kind of meek woman to someone who was really enraged was really cathartic for me as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, I think to say that there are a lot of emotions the first time you watch this film is kind of um, an understatement. I um, sort of got this on blu-ray um and this is a film that like i'd heard about certain scenes of the movie but i'd never watched it because i think just reading the description of certain things i was kind of like oh god damn (laughs) and the thing is i like i'd actually misremembered some of the stuff that i read so when i watched the film and things happened i was like this is different from what i knew for the last 10 years oh no oh god um and i think at certain scenes I I actually dragged my girlfriend and uh, she watched this with me as well. Oh, date night. <laughs> so let's just say there was two certain scenes each of us couldn't watch, really. <laughs> um, but apparently the sound that I made was, oh, no. Um, <laughs> I kind of wish I'd like recorded it uh, just as a historical document of my life <laughs> and this podcast and the noises that I'm still capable of at th- uh, 31 years old. But but certainly outside of that, I mean, I I can certainly understand, certainly when this debuted at Cannes as well, the sort of furore and the controversy around this. And I was watching some of the features online, sort of Chaos Reigns at Cannes 2009. And there's that um, sort of the Daily Mail journalist that stood up Aww. and demanded that Lars von Trier justify 
why he made this movie. Don't get me started on the Daily Mail and that journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that the general kind of the way the film was treated and even like, like I like Mark Commode and Simon Mayo, but like their treatment of Willem Dafoe on the show when he came to talk about Antichrist. I just found that was like really glib and like, I don't know, just kind of like immediately like shouting him down, being like, well, we, Lars Von Trier made the film. What does he know about it? And like, Willem Dafoe's like, well, sorry, but guys, I'm here to talk about like, do you know what I mean? Like, you're talking about people getting hit in the, yeah, in the private parts. It's like, it's more than that. And it's like, yeah. that, I find that like deeply uncomfortable. And I imagine like from all the reports of the set, doesn't sound like it was a nice time for anyone but not in the way of like there was any bad shit going on like nobody was mistreated but just in the fact it was mm-hmm. it's heavy subject matter Lars von Trier basically made this film in like a depressive state like I think mm-hmm. it's it's quoted that he couldn't even operate the camera like he likes to do on his films because he just physically couldn't do it and kind of when you I think I think it's one of those things like, I'm not sure how you feel about this Rebecca and Daryl but like when you know stuff like that, it kind of like gives you even more appreciation for the film, and especially like this film is sure. one, one of three of like this kind of. And I, like, I love when directors do this, like yeah, like it's like an unofficial trilogy. This is my hmm. depression trilogy, and like I remember, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to blow my bloody load early on this one and say what I feel about it, but I will say of the depression trilogy, like Melancholia is my favorite, just because. I saw that in the cinema and it like, and I think it like, like you saying like that feeling of seeing this film, in the cinema and like kind of feeling changed by, I remember feeling like drastically changed by melancholia, but like, Oh, a film has made like, has basically visualized how I feel most of the fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, getting, I'm getting goosebumps. You're just talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like crying, which is very rare for me on a podcast. I don't feel I've ever cried on a podcast. That's what you get for giving up smoking guys. You get emotional. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let, let's like, I guess touch on the, that sort of, like just picking up on your points about the sort of cultural impact and the mm-hmm. critical response, I guess, you know, this is a film that does have a controversial reputation and that is what people like to focus on those extreme scenes you know uh, violence pain you know and I think a lot of people are shocked when I tell them this is one of my favorite films and they you know, yeah. think they leap towards those scenes and those elements you know and I think this got big reactions you know people booed people cheered and I think as you've said there's a context to it and I think a lot of the response is based on that this is a film that puts you in an uncomfortable space. Mm-hmm. So when you're put in an uncomfortable space, the response you have will, you know, reflect that. And yeah, the the Daily Mail stuff would justify why you made this film. It's you know, this is it's a personal film, and it's it's Lars's art, and it's not there for every, you know, it's not a film that's for everybody you know um and i don't think anyone has to defend that i think lars is a provocateur for sure right but there is so much of the personal in this film i think willem had said that like lars was both director and muse for this film and i really see that and i think i don't think we should censor like artists having total control over their vision 
which is what really comes across in Antichrist. And I think Mm -hmm. people really struggle when they can't categorize things and when they can't like go explain things away and put them in neat little boxes. This film is like, is it horror? Is it torture porn? Is it psychological? It's it's all those things. Is it feminist? Is it misogynistic? You know? Mm -hmm. And I do like a film that stares up debate as well on the, I guess on the opposite side, but um. This is a film that is accepted and respected and loved by many people. You know, Charlotte won the Palme d'Or Award for this at Cannes. I think it's it's less about looking at those sort of... The, a lot of people talk about this film as being titillating, but I think the discourse around it is very titillating and very sensationalist. So, yeah. 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 I don't think anything about this film is like I don't I don't watch this like well, a film we watched uh, for this podcast recently was Body of Evidence, which is like a film <laughs> where it's like supposed to be like core rubbing your. I know, face. I know that film. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just kind of context for the listeners, but like, <laughs> the, I don't think there's anything about this where you're supposed to be like and like. I, I, this may say something about me. There is something about like there are certain moments in this, like some of the kind of animalistic sex where you go there is something like a frisson of like sexiness about this but this film is so oppressive that it, like i don't think any of it is to like go like core like do you know I mean this isn't going to be this will be passed around by teenage boys to be like there's some gruesome shit in this not like oh there's a sex scene at minute 32 like that no really it's not male gazy you know the, ca- the camera isn't like the camera isn't encouraging that kind of response i don't feel and because you've got all those heightened emotions on top of it and these scenes that, that are spoken about they make up quite a small proportion of what yeah. the actual film is so you have to actually watch quite a lot to get to those moments i think i completely agree because even though there are you know a number of sexual scenes in this it's it's done in such a way that none of them are like oh right, okay hello i mean again you know I, this is probably a point i'll have to bring up um ad nauseum throughout the recording again my first viewing of this for there to be a close-up of like full frontal penetra- penetration like in the first minute i was like oh okay um, so, you know, is, is that where we're going with this? But then, you know, very quickly after that, even though, you know, it's, it's like an extreme slow motion, sort of black and white, beautiful cinematography throughout. Yeah. And then it's th- that immediate juxtaposition of what happens with the child. I'm like, I'm not I'm not thinking about them sort of having, uh, you know, sex or anything. And then there's so much else going on. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. Right, this is something completely different. And I suppose another point for me as well, like this is... I believe this is like my my introduction to Von Trier as well. I've not seen any of his other films, so oh wow! So this is you know you know what what a diving off point for me. <laughs> yeah, where'd you go of, from here? <laughs> well, I mean, inevitably we have to go to Nymphomaniac at some point. So I, yeah, I was and, and Defoe's only in part two, so you've got to watch the whole shebang. Which I must add, I watched in a double bill my local cinema. And I remember I was living with my parents and my mom, I told my parents about it and they went, oh, my mum, as I left the house, went, oh, you're going to watch your sex film. And I felt so <laughs> grubby. I was, yeah, I am. I am. I love every minute of it. Yeah, you offer a double bill, you creep. You yeah, go, yeah, you yeah. go, you I go down. It was, it was a lot of men, it was a lot of men in that screen. I felt, I felt so grubby. <laughs> but then sort of watching this film as well, um, Again, I'm kind of like, you know, this is my introduction to Von Trier. And exactly as you said, Rebecca, like, okay, I I understand now that, and uh, the word you used, this man is a provocateur. And looking at all the opinions and, for lack of a better term, the fallout of this movie online, 
people have opinions of this. And then I'm also thinking, what else can this man do to genitals? Like, hot damn, this this guy. I'm obviously talking about the the prologue as well. You know, we've got, well, he in the, in the shower, and then he and she are sort of getting down to the business. And then... <laughs> I mean, I like to say it is so awkward. Look, look, I'm 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 trying to describe this and not make it immediately. This is like a sex education class at school. I I I just have the vibe of just like a teacher who's just trying so hard not to get cancelled all the time, (laughs) right? It's like it's like I'm just trying not to name people. I don't look anyone in the eye. It's like when a man and a woman love each other very much, sometimes they turn the baby monitor off. Which is what happened. That you know, that child does like the great escape. And obviously, this this sets up a lot of stuff at the start as well. Uh, you know, we've got the the tragic death of the child sort of plummeting from the window. We get the first hints of like the three beggars on the table as well. And you know, the prologue and the epilogue are, are in their own way such kind of haunting and beautiful bookends yeah. to this movie. But but for, but for the prologue. For you, Rebecca, because obviously it sets up a lot. You know, how does the prologue sort of work for you as well? Oh, it's, I mean, it's absolutely crucial. For me, it's like, it was that pulling in point. I think this is Lars taking us from our world into his world. It's like, I don't think you could just sit and go into Antichrist, like with Willem going to see Charlotte at the hospital. It's like, you've got to go into it via this route because there's so many different like techniques and styles that are used in this film. And I think you know we can look at them as meaning different things you know the rational the irrational we've got like the slow-mo and the dream sequences and things so i think this is really it's communicating emotion is what it's doing you know we've got like sex and death like linked together in one prologue which is like as you said before it's a massive juxtaposition of your feelings are in one place and then all of a sudden they're in another and also it's like it concludes with the child falling, which is done beautifully, but it's obviously it's it's death of a child, which is such a it's such an emotional yeah. thing for anybody. And I think that's such despair. Where's this film gonna go from here? Where does yeah. it go? <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, but um yeah, Guess so I, <laughs> I think I think it, it, for me this is as, as with melancholia it's like this is his way of almost like I guess like massaging us and preparing us for what we're gonna see and how we're gonna feel and without it I just don't think the film would even work for me <laughs> yeah, I think just like on a technical like aspect of that kind of prologue is like yeah it's like what 9,000 frames per second it's almost like these moving tableaus like it's almost like you could it depends how how sick and twisted you are you could put out any frame of this and like you could put it on your wall as a painting. I know that said a lot about films, but like it's no, just it's kind true. of like high contrast. Like you can see, you know what I mean? You can see the like the deep lines in Defoe's face, and like it kind of like yeah. gives you yeah. time to to get like weirdly get to know these characters in this weird perverted way. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, I'm not just talking about because you're watching them have sex, but it's like he's really slowed it down. It's like. I don't know, so I can only imagine what it would have been like in the cinema because it is kind of like oh. a disorientating start to a film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've, you've got that the, the the opera over the top of it, which is yeah. all about, I don't know if you've read the lyrics, but that's all about like a lament for grief. Yeah. So it's powerful. It's really powerful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the, the translation is, let me weep my cruel fate and I sigh for liberty. May my sorrow break these chains of my suffering for pity's sake. It's heartbreaking, right? Latin, Latin gets deep sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I think obviously, you know, I think like you're saying there, Petros, I think if you'd seen this in the cinema, maybe you didn't know that much going into it. And then, you know, you, you do see the foe's ball bag very quickly. Like you're thinking, oh, oh his okay. But uh, I think horse barons. Well, the foe's standing bag, shall we, shall we <laughs> accurately say. I think I'm watching this for a second time as well. You sort of understand. You know, this in its own way is really sort of pushing the fact that there is going to be maybe even to an extent an uncomfortable intimacy with what we're going to see in this film as well, because I think as they, they've sort of said so often in interviews, this film does tackle a lot of uh, subjects that may be sort of deemed taboo, like maybe, you know, maybe not just in cinema as well, but I think a lot of the ones that you sort of pointed out earlier, Rebecca, you know, like uh, grief and anxiety and depression and the death of a child and uh, religion and nature and misogyny and this is kind of when I, when I was writing the notes for this uh, episode as well I always sort of start by saying this week we're looking at da, 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 da. and then I was trying to look I think maybe a bit hopelessly online I was like if there was just one way to describe it and every website I looked at described it a little bit differently oh. and I was like like I never get an opportunity to use the term psychosexual so it's like that's going in <laughs> that's, that's a great one but it it, it, it does so much and um, even with sort of, you know, the, the chapters that break it up, we go to the first chapter, which is grief. And it kind of sets you up for, as a sort of a loose overview, this is kind of what we're going to be but looking I, at here. I've got to say, like, your synopsis of it, Daryl, both of them, is that thing of, like, it's very scant for plot, right? Mm. Like, cause it is like, like you said, it is two people suffer this loss, go to a cabin, and it's like, that is it. That is it. Sure. Like, there's, and I, I, I think... I think the kind of uh, one of the keys to this is, and I feel like it's the best to mention it before we get into it. Because, like knowing this, rewatching it, it's kind of like weighing on my mind. Was Lars von Trier like had had written the script for this? I think two two thousand five, two thousand six, and one of the producers made slip that like the kind of reveal at the end of it was going to be that this was a world in which Satan had created as opposed to God. Yeah. And last one true kind of was like, fuck that shit. Like I'm, I'm like retooling it. I'm kind of doing some rewrites and then kind of came with it. But I feel like that is like there, there is something in that. I don't know. I don't know if like you guys get that, but like knowing that, like watching it again, like, are we what, like, I don't know, like all the religious stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like is the death of the child and what they're, the sex they're having, is that original sin? Like I just kind of, it, my, my mind is whirring of like trying to, and I'm, like you mentioned, Rebecca, there's analogy within this, but I don't think there are clear cut answers for like, it's, it's analogous to different things, right? There's kind of like, yeah, it's the bit of religion, there's a bit of paganism, or there's a bit of like kind of, do you know what I mean, witchcraft and all types of stuff. And there's like, there's lines that specifically jump out, and I'm sure we'll get to them. As a combo, it's like, oh, that feels like that could be from like some ancient text, and like from Googling one of them, I think it's um, a line that really sticks out to, out to me is like, a crying woman is a scheming woman, which sounds like it's from some kind of like 15th century text of like, do you know what I mean? Like when they used to hunt for witches or something like that. But like, 
everything just pulls it back to this film. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Like I, you, 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 I think you could go crazy and end up like hurting yourself looking for answers in this film. And I'm, I'm sure if anyone knows that it's probably you, Rebecca. Well, I enjoy ambiguity in horror as well. I mean, that's one of, especially as I get older. Um, and I guess, you know, in a post-COVID world where things did feel very uncertain and I enjoy listening to people's interpretations and seeing what different people project onto this film. I guess to go back to the question about the devil, etc. I think there's a malevolence in this film. I think there's a there's some kind of encouragement towards looking at nature as being malevolent and there being this like tension between the nature of the nature of nature and the nature of I won't say mankind, but humankind, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so that, that thing like nature as well, like even if we look, and I think there's like almost like fairy tale aspect to this film in the fact of like when like old fairy tales, in, and it is, it's kind of fascinating that like Lars von Trier, a fellow Dane, comes from the, 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 the same place as Hans Christian Andersen. Mm-hmm. And you kind of look at those old tales and without the kind of Disneyfication of it, all of it, the woods, like the natural world is scary. In these old tales, it is like, Sure. It is oppressive and it's like that thing of like it's almost there to be tamed or to be feared as opposed to like this thing of like, oh, it's going to be nymphs and and and, and like singing. Do you know what I mean? Like singing birds and stuff like that. It is like, no, it's Hansel and Gretel. Do you know what I mean? You go down to the woods, you're fucked. And, it's, <laughs> and that, that's kind of, there, 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 there's elements. It should have been the tagline. <laughs> no, don't, don't get me started. There's an 80s version of Hansel and Gretel that gives me like fucking nightmares to this day. So, yeah, I'm I'm of the belief you go down to the woods, you're fucked. <laughs> It's, it's much uh, much more honest branding, isn't it? Really, I, I mean, if, if there's one if there's one thing I know, and I don't claim to be a horror connoisseur by any stretch of the imagination, but if there's one thing I know, nothing good has ever come from going to a cabin in the woods. When we sort of finished this film, me and my um, partner the other night, I said to her, like, if you ever suggest going anywhere and it's a cabin in the woods, we have to break up. Because I I need to know if I've upset you before we go to the cabin in the woods. I need to inspect every cabinet in that room and see what sharp stuff is in there. Just give me an hour. Get get the (laughs) grindstone. Gone. Scissors. Gone. Uh, You see that fox who's been peeping at us for the past hour? He's out of here. Scram. Um, She can go and lay on the grass for a while, can't she? (laughs) You you go blend into the grass. I've been punching this crow in the face for the past hour and it won't die. Obviously, before we get to the cabin, you know, I think one of the the other really affecting shots for me is where you see, you see, um, it's kind of the hearse point of view where they're walking behind the hearse and... Um, the faces are all blurred behind as well. You only see Willem and Charlotte, and Charlotte just collapses in, uh, overwhelmed by despair, grief, um, just loss and sadness. And it's, it's again, like a, a poignantly beautiful but such a depressing shot as well. And it's like you... you like the film is sort of taking you like on a lot of places. Uh, not, they're not all going to be happy places. Uh, and later on in the film, there is kind of like almost like a grotesque humour in some ways as well to this film. 
but then you sort of get that she's uh, she's been in the hospital for a month and this is when we, we get a bit more of their dynamic as well. We learn that he is a psychiatrist and then he's kind of interjecting himself a little bit in the recovery process saying, I, I don't like the medication this doctor has given you. It makes me proud that I'm not a doctor when I meet people like that. And this this is kind of something because the first time I watched this, and, and you know, as we keep saying here, there are so many different reads and perspectives and things that you can take away from this film but it's like the first time i watched this like i kind of saw it in the viewpoint that not necessarily an out and out good guy in the typical way we might think of it but i saw it as like defoe's character is uh, genuinely there to try and help in the recovery process okay okay maybe he's interjecting himself a little bit and i kind of saw him in that way uh but then at the second the second time i kind of watched it i was like hmm but maybe <laughs> maybe not Maybe not, because, she, you know, she accuses him of being a bit distant later on in the film. And, you know, maybe he's projecting his sort of loss onto her. He's trying to control the way that her emotions come as well. And and in that sense, I am glad I watched it a second time, because I think I would have had a very tunnel vision view of this otherwise. But in terms of the relationship of these two characters, certainly at this point in the film and the way it progresses, and I suppose in a way, maybe going back to your previous viewings of the film, Re Rebecca, um, did their relationship sort of change for you on subsequent viewings? Have you always seen it in sort of one way? Or has it always been, you know, I think there's so many different ways you can just look at this as well. I guess firstly, to s just a, a very quick note on that uh, hair scene that you mentioned. And it's interesting to me, it, it just clicks that Charlotte falls and there's a lot of falling in this film. Falling of Nick, falling of acorns, falling of birds from trees. Mm. I think there's something there to unpack. I don't know what, but I think it's a very interesting motif. In regards to the relationship, I think... I think my and my response to it has always been pretty much that he's an oppressor and um mm -hmm. but I think in terms of how I've thought about the gender tensions in the film and what's being represented I guess that sort of deepened over time and I've gone into more detail with it. I think he's someone who at least to begin with he varies from seeming to want the best for his wife but then being incredibly haughty and self-righteous. Yeah. There's a real air of superiority about him at times, but then other times he seems to be quite gentle as well. So he is capable of being two things. It's also, I feel like his character fits into that classic, I won't say doctor because he's a therapist, but that sort of, that classic trope that we get in horror particularly of I can cure a woman you know I'm a I'm a yeah. therapist or I'm a doctor and I can cure you you know telling her to discard the pills for example applying all his therapeutic practices to her analyzing her she's also almost like a specimen to him and I think he's really fascinated with her when she's seems to be unwell but when and I guess maybe we'll talk about it later because I do want to touch on that scene but when she presents and presents as the keyword as being healed his world's like turns upside down for him the yeah. control is taken away and they yeah. almost go on like like in melancholia like the two leads this sort of cross journey of you know um which is interesting to me but i think you mentioned before um daryl about that comment about being distant i think it's a really interesting uh comment you know so it's you you know you've been distant for a while from from me and nick and I wonder if Nick's really the reason why these two have stayed together, uh, just looking at their relationship. Well, you know, he minimises her and I guess let's not forget, as a therapist, he shouldn't be treating 
someone who no. is in his family. So no, for all no. this haughtiness, he's very unprofessional in that sense. Yeah, 100%. And he keeps like the medical report from, uh, you know, so there's this uneven power dynamic, certainly in the start, you know, and it's very much we see all these different exercises he's always putting her through. He never to me, and I'd like to hear what you two think, he never to me seems to respond to her as a husband, as a human being. It's always as a patient. Yeah, it's it's. It was very interesting to sort of reassess the dynamic on a second viewing and start picking up on so much more that I'd um, just missed uh, about the reading of his character the first time round as well. And I watched sort of bits and pieces with the audio commentary with Lars von Trier as well, which that in itself is quite interesting. They talk (laughs) a lot about the cinematography, but... Uh, you know, slightly off topic here. Um, he's a fucking troll as well, isn't he? So like, <laughs> I'm surprised. He, like, I, I love directors who, who troll on uh, commentaries. Wes Anderson does it all the time. He does. He always says like, "Oh yeah, that was done with CGI." It's like, no, it fucking wasn't. Wes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my favorite things, and oh, forgive me, I forget, I, I forget the name of um, the person that Von Trier was talking with on the commentary, but he brings up these quite like articulate points every now and then. It's so, like. Oh, I like um, you know, yeah, I can actually tie this scene into this scene later, and there's a motif of this and this, and it's like, can I get your thoughts on that? And Von Trier is just like, um, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I was like, he's like, no, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't think of that at all. I was like, yes, this is the kind of commentary that I come for. <laughs> but definitely going back to Defoe's character, like again, the first time I was like, eh, you, you know, maybe a little unprofessional, but I can see in the midst of this like enormous grief maybe why he'd want to sort of take on this when he definitely shouldn't it sounds like he's he's dismissing the um the medical advice of someone that's not himself he's um as soon as they out of the hospital and they go into this cabin he's going through that sort of um psychotherapy on the train saying like blowing the thistle blooms where are you going now lie in the grass yeah give the woman a break (laughs) (laughs) just let her enjoy the train ride man come on Buy her a um, Twix. <laughs> <laughs> so look, we don't even know if she's got a rail card. How much did you pay for that train? We don't know. Um, I'm, I'm saying this. I'm saying this in, in the words of a bitter man whose 26 to 30 rail card just expired, and now I've got to pay full prices. Mm-hmm. Mortified. But that that sort of scene later on, I think, is like a perfect example of it. When again, as you said, she presents as cured, and she's like, "I'm, I'm feeling better," and she's sort of running through the stream. She seems more upbeat and more physical in herself and you see it in his face is like yeah no this isn't what's yeah. going on this isn't right and on the on on the second viewing i was kind of like you're you're, you're a bit of a dick yeah you're, you're it's a bit of a what dick. i wrote in my notes i wasn't gonna say it <laughs> literally wrote he's <laughs> a bit of a dick yeah <laughs> I, I i i i think a very, very telling line like moment in this is when she is her feet are burning as she's walking through Eden and he is just so dismissive of it. Mm-hmm. And like that 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 in itself is like analogous for just kind of like men not listening to women's like problems. And this thing of like like you're saying, that trope throughout horror where like and you think of like something like Rosemary's baby where like she's going to the doctor and being like I think there's this cult like he's in on it but it's like oh you're just like do you know what I mean like have some pills or like do you know what I mean like you're, yeah. you're just being hysterical there uh-huh. is this kind of this element of that and like I think as well with the whole like therapy stuff like we we we, we can't not 
like separated from the fact that yeah Lars von Trier himself had just come out of a psychiatric hospital and I feel like this film is almost like a treatise on like somewhat his views on like how how like because I, I know that Defoe went and studied people doing immersion therapy and I think CBT and I think like there's like this thing of like I don't know there's a bit of Lars von Trier kind of saying like these these people ignore certain things like do you know what I mean and like they kind of I don't know like I think one of the things that this film touches on is this idea of like an inbuilt anxiety and depression that comes from generations and generations of abuse to whether it is kind of women or a certain race or a, a certain class of people that isn't just like it's 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 not about the individual and i think that's like like you kind of get that through like imagery in this film when like there is this 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 horde of faceless women or there are basically allusions to eden like the ground is just strewn with the bodies of dead women like or like we, we can we can we can uh, yeah suppose that that is like what w- w- that that is and like yeah i just think that he he is a dick right yeah he's kind of like and it like not that you get it but there's this element of some some people that's how they deal with their grief right is they need a project but then yeah as soon as as soon as she is presenting better than it is that element of like oh you're better my project is over and now i have to actually deal with the pain and the grief that yeah we do see him upset at the funeral but he seems to have like i don't know very quickly but like a a month has passed but a month feels like a short time to completely grieve I mean, even if you're Roman Roy in it and pre-grieving, uh, you, you can, uh, yeah. uh, you can, uh, yeah, you, 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 you can't do, deal with that in a month. Like, it's, it's a maniac. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is kind of the thing as well because he really doesn't seem to grieve. Obviously, we see him looking very forlorn when he's walking behind the hearse, but f- as far as the rest of the film concerns, he, um, his wife is. A project so you, you know whether it's the case that like he is vicariously dealing with his grief through her or is and i sort of thought you know you're talking about some um i guess the gender readings in this film as well there's almost like an archetypal reading of you know the the classic man who wants to fix everything yeah um and i i was sort of reading into some things online and i sort of read that and i was like yeah yeah i can i can kind of say yeah i think i can agree with with that one on some level as well and obviously he has his own own sort of viewings because he he obviously more than um her he's the one who sort of encounters the three beggars as well who are these mm-hmm. sort of um almost these outer worldly motifs that sort of signify the um, the three different chapters in the film of grief, pain, and despair as well. So it's kind of interesting that while he's trying to, you know, big echoes fix his wife, he encounters the, all these stages. But whether or not that, you know, he actually takes it on board, or it's nature trying to tell him how to respond, you know, I'm, I'm still trying. I think still just trying to figure out my own sort of interpretation of what all that is as well. But obviously, touching touching on that, you know, the three beggars as they sort of appear throughout the film, 
Um, what was your sort of reading of the three the, the three beggars? Because obviously the, we we see that deer with the stillborn sort of hanging out the, the backside of it. We see the fox eating itself. Um, sort of, uh, it took me a moment to realize what the fox was doing, and I was like, oh oh god, no! And then I think it's the raven in the fox hole who you think is dead, and then. That Raven's got a great career in the UFC. Let me tell, let me say that much because that uh, took a licking and kept on squawking. <laughs> but very, like, very interesting. He seemed with constellations at the end as well. I think one of my, I, I come back to sort of like the grotesque comedy that's in this film. Hmm. One of my lines that made me laugh is, you know, when Defoe is like basically on the floor and delirious later on the film, he sees. Uh, the three beggars, um, and he just goes, they're not constellations, they're not real. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that re- really made me laugh. <laughs> like, I, I know on the grand scheme of things, the, the, sort of the three beggars aren't necessarily there to be laughed at, but again, to the original point, Rebecca, um, uh, what was your sort of interpretation and reading on the three beggars and how they appear throughout the film as well? I think it's an interesting point to be made that it is... Uh, the he character that sees these these horror these like these horrible incidences that kind of like break up the chapters and I feel like it's interesting that the woods is the place that she was afraid to go to that he came here believing oh, this is a place of fear for her actually I think this is more of a place of fear for him I mean more bad things happen you know certainly before we get to the to the end of course but I think you know he's there's a lot of bad things that go on in the woods and I think it's I think the the three beggars I mean we see them at the start don't we I think they're allegorical I think they're I almost want to steer towards some kind of religious reading but then with Lars like then I kind of feel like nihilism as well um (laughs) (laughs) I think I think they're they're very good symbols and I think they it's definitely tied to nature and the fact that you know these are creatures that you know sweet little deer in the woods a a sweet little bird you know but actually nature can be of no interest nature can be completely like devoid of emotion and just happen um and like I say, those sort of fallen motifs as well, which I think are interesting. Yeah, I think they're just a really good addition to the film and add. It was interesting how you talk about fairy tales as well, because yeah, I think they just add a nice sort of allegory and they just tie into all these devices that he's using. Well, the, 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 the three beggars feels like it, like should be some kind of fairy tale characters, or you saying about yeah. like the religious it's almost like this it brings up those imagery right of like the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the three wise men or that and like to pick up on the point you said about like the like falling one of my tabs i've got open here i've had gynocide like as just as as something and i i don't know why i said i'm gonna write falling afterwards the first thing that came up is a paper from uh, Williams College, and it says "Gynocide: The Murder of the Goddess." And just like the kind of like a, a line that is plucked out and, and and put here is the woman's original sin is being held culpable for man's fall from reality, thus justifying his dominance over her inherent sinfulness. And oh. it is this thing: it's it's her that's falling a lot. It's it's the boy that is falling, and it's like and like when we get to that scene at the end, and it's like that thing of she has. Do you know what I mean she is the one who shoulders the the blame, whether that is real or not. She is the one who is believes this idea that she is inherently evil, 
and she kind of agrees with Gino's side and like do you know I mean when we see the version of her seeing their son fall out of the window it's that can be read many a way but I think like part of that is yeah this thing of like women are almost told do you know what I mean like from from like the bible it's your fucking fault do you know what I mean? Like, like it, 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 in one way or another. And it's kind of, that, that, that's, yeah, I don't know. I feel, I feel like that, that could be something in that. But at the same time, last one, it could just be yanking our chains and, like, and just playing with all of it, which I think is great. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of think her sort of research and stuff. And I think, I think she's almost working through realising that she's being repressed. And I think, you know, it, Going back to, I think this is like, she decides she's not going to be treated as his patient, even though she's not, I guess, quote unquote, cured. There's a release that comes with that and she rebels. And I think, I think when we talk about, I guess, the gender tensions, I see this as a film that's about men and women, like not understanding one another and it being about, I guess, the perpetual nature of the over power and patriarchy and about really you know men failing to understand women and fearing women as well like definitely fearing women but told from the perspective of somebody who seems to really understand women Lars is for me someone I see Lars as the she character in this film totally and I think that's that thing as well. He's using like he's using the language of like this kind of uh, a woman with this self hatred. So again, use that as a cipher to tell us a story about what it is to feel depressed. And that thing of like you start to believe your own bullshit in your head. And in 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 in, in the kind of like way it's presented in this film is she is doing this thesis on gynocide, and then like over time just believes it and it's that way that we kind of if you're if you're unfortunate enough to like like have like feel feel depressed you just kind of beat yourself up and go around these spirals to the point where you're like do you know what i'm believing the propaganda in my own mind that i am like inherently evil the reason all this bad stuff has happened to me is because of me and like i I know i've felt like that and i feel like this film manages to like really present that as well as like you said tap into stuff uh with like like the the inherent fear that men have of women i think i think like it's still fucking prevalent today do you know what i mean like it's it's probably more so than than 2009 when this film was made right like the things are just getting bleak yeah i, I mean Again, sort of looking at um, like the gynocide when he goes up into uh, sort of the roof. Uh, I know Von Trier said in the commentary that this was sort of him going into her brain and mm-hmm. seeing sort of you know where it's at, and it's th- that whole role play conversation that they have as well. When we get a more direct look, at, you know, where she is at mentally, um, and they do that whole role play where he says like, "I'm going to be nature," and we'll sort of take it from there. And he's saying like, um, I'm, I'm the nature of outside, I'm the nature of all things. And then she says that, that nature controls women's bodies. I've read about this in my books. Um, and then she, I forget the exact line, but later she says that uh, nature is Satan's garden. I think church. it's church. Yes, yeah. nature is Satan's church. And it, it's that interesting motif as well against, you know, uh, nature and i suppose i was looking at you know when they say nature i think how he was looking at nature saying like well what is it about outside this cabin that sort of scares you and then not thinking like oh like the the, the in, in the innate nature of 
beings as well that's you mm-hmm. know nature is you know much bigger than sort of all of that and, and then it's, it's interesting when she's looking at um you know are women evil and i know a lot of the, a lot of people sort of read this film to uh, maybe on on this scene sort of added into that but is there a misogyny in this film as well and so i i mean i don't know if there is um, i mean i can see if you look at it on face value i can probably see how you could take that away given well, how you're, you're probably more i don't you, yeah you've watched this a lot more than us and you've studied this rebecca what 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 are like what's the has there, has there been this back and forth what's your working out to get into some kind of idea on whether this is misogynist or not. Well, I guess to to, to sort of state at the outset, this is my interpretation, so it's specific to me. Um, I don't see any misogyny. I think this could be a film about misogyny, but is it a misogynistic film? For me, it, it it's not. As I said before, Lars is really putting himself in the character of she. It comes from a place of vulnerability, and I really feel that. And I think if we look at that epilogue and what that shows us and tells us, I think all the information you need is there. It's uh, all these faceless women that continue and are, I guess, surrounding him, which to me says that Lars understands that oppression that women face so mm. and the space that charlotte goes to you know the the power that she gains throughout the film and, and i guess the studies that she's undertaking you know there's all these things throughout the film that to me i i don't i don't read it as being misogynistic yeah i think i think someone to like quote as well here is um so one of the people that <laughs> lars von trier had working on this film is heidi laura as a misogyny like uh, advisor so i think that's where like a, a kind of some of the sensationalizing came from it's like oh why has he got like why has he got this person on what is the reason is it someone to be like i don't know edge off where the misogyny is or something like that and she, she said to the independent call me evil but i think the darkest shadows of civilization deserve, deserve to be seen and reflected on rather than ignored as i moved through the sources i realized the age-old dichotomy between supposedly rational man and supposedly wild and uncontrollable women ruled by impulse and desire has never left us so it's like obviously someone who worked on the film but it's like i'm sure as yeah she's a writer herself she wouldn't have like signed on to this i don't know i don't think people would sign on to stuff to be like oh yeah this is and you can show stuff right you could like like american history x is a film about a racist. Don't no I don't think anyone comes away from that film going, oh, that's a racist film. Like, do you know what I mean? Like so there's other films like that, but like they are horrible. But yeah, it's like it's it's weird. I think it yeah, it play and it plays with that. Like like I keep saying, and obviously a provocateur is probably the better way. But Lars von Trier is a bit of a troll as well. Like he said some pretty like dicey things at like Cannes and stuff like that. But and but he says it with like a glint in his eye, right? He said about this film, he said like I feel like yeah, I think it's to that Daily Mail uh journalist that we all hate we fuck the daily mail but he, he said he said like i feel like you're here like this is my party yeah like, we're all guests you. at his table yeah. and i agree yeah. with that we are yeah, yeah. he puts the art out he invites us we don't have to attend but if we want to we might have a good time we might not but you know it's been his party <laughs> yeah exactly if someone says like i'm coming around mystery dinner do you know what i mean and they they, they serve you a plate 
it's my choice to go, yeah, I didn't, you know what, mate? I didn't really enjoy it, but like, you know what I mean? Next time, tell me what the fuck it was on the menu a bit more before I come round or whatever. Like, but, but thanks for the invite. And like, yeah, when he said, he said at that press conference, like, I'm the greatest director in the world. He's trolling us, guys. Gotta got love him for it. Anyone who puts the Daily Mail down is a hero in my eyes. Um, <laughs> obviously, looking, you know, on the second viewing, looking at it in a more... Again, lack of a better term, a more maybe sympathetic light towards Bashir as well than I had been on the first one. And you sort of, I feel you get more of an understanding of her um, of her actions and sort of where she's at. And it, obviously, notably throughout the film, she does try to initiate a lot of like forceful sex. But sort of reading into the film, you know, for se- for a lot of people, you know, sex is a way to sort of forget about despair and grief yeah. and. Um, it, if you've it's... got all that anxious energy as well, it's it's a way to sort of like channel that and never screw your therapist. But um, <laughs> doesn't buy by that really either, does he? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. He's, he's a bad, bad man. Obviously, obviously, you know, there's a lot of anxious energy throughout the film, and Von Trier himself has said the film is really about anxiety, and she is often sort of reprimanded for wanting to have sex and you know have any kind of like. Uh, desire or need and a lot of that um sort of culminates in a scene when you know they're in that tree outside because she's previously initiated sex and she's asking he to hit her and make it hurt and he's like i don't want to do that and then she says well if you don't hit me then you don't love me well maybe i don't love you and then she's out there in the woods and they you know um start fucking against that tree and then there's all like the like the limbs and the body parts of like under mm. the roots and i think it's very sort of interesting to sort of you know try and understand that scene a bit more and uh, you know maybe at this point they are becoming more attuned with nature um or but then with all the body sort of buried under the trees it's like nature trying to re- repress uh, the femininity um it's it's such a striking scene and i think maybe even on the the US criterion that's the cover of of the film i yeah. think as well so it's a, it's a striking image like what what was your sort of thoughts on on that scene i guess like going back to you know the sort of hit me till it hurts i i read that as she wants to feel mm-hmm. and you know she just wants to feel something and there's a lot of like i guess juxtaposition in this film of pleasure and pain isn't there mm-hmm. so the two things feel like they're always somewhat interlinked that they just sort of coexist and sort of can exist together. I read that as, it's interesting, it's interesting. So she's obviously naked and she's on the earth, so she's got that connection with the woods. And and then she's quoting things like, again, as you said before, Petros, the sort of like things that sound like they could come out of some historical text. It's almost a bit of a possession moment. Mm, And I think... I wonder about she starts to get really empowered after then. In, in, yeah. and, you know, it's a wonder if those limbs are almost, you know, women empowering her to to take the space and, you know, kick back. That doesn't she say that thing as well? Like uh, the the sisters from Rattlesbourne could summon yeah. could could summon hailstorms or something like that. Like yeah. And it is like, yeah, I think I think it is that kind of like generational kind of like communal, like womanhood, do you know what I mean? Like kind of tapping into that that deep vein and like, yeah, I think sometimes to, to get over generational trauma or kind of like that is not even just like within your family, but within mm-hmm. your, like I said before, like your racial group, your sex, your class, your whatever, like 
you, you need to like understand the past. And yeah, I, I love that. I love that image of like that scene as like this transference of, of power to, to her. And yeah, it's just, it's such a striking image. Yeah. It's like the, the, it's, on, the, it's the image that's on the, I've got the vinyl as well. And oh, it's amazing. the image on the front of the oh, vinyl. Nice. <laughs> just pop that out when the parents come around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a it's a centerpiece, if nothing else. <laughs> so, I saw that that quote you mentioned: the sisters from Ratisbon could start a hailstorm. Apparently, it's a direct quotation from I might be pronouncing this incorrectly, uh, Malleus Maleficarum, uh, an infamous 15th century treatise on witch hunting that directly informed the persecution and murder of countless women. So, you know. When they're talking about, so I guess, like the, the generational persecution of women as well. I suppose he brings it up quite directly. So maybe her sort of saying that, I don't know if that's, again, meant to be sort of uh, nature and the evil of women starting to intertwine there a little bit. But it certainly um, uh, brings us into, you know, towards the end of the film where, and we mentioned this earlier, obviously, one of the many sort of arsehole things that uh, Defoe does, he keeps the autopsy report from her. And we learn from the Polaroids they have of their son that she had been um, almost like systematically putting the wrong shoes on the wrong feet that led to a foot deformity. Oh. Now, sort of, whether that sort of led directly to him, the son falling at the start, I'm not too sure. But I, I'm not sure if anyone else got this. I remember when I first saw it, the foot deformity. I thought it was like an element that, like, their son had like hoof-like feet, and I like, I'm not sure if I was like a young dum dum, like, or like, and because I, like, I was like, this is played like a big reveal, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know. Like now, I'm kind of like. Well, obviously, it just shows that she was either way. It was just basically like doing this. Yeah, had believed all of this stuff that women are evil. So it's like, what can I do as like a small act of evil against my son? And it's like yeah, putting his shoes on the wrong feet. And it's like, and I guess it's that thing of like the small things that people do. Do you know what I mean? Like, either, it, I don't know. I guess it's a, a talisman of for evil to penetrate and perpetrate it's lots of little things almost and it's kind of she's she's bought into the yeah she's bought into the bullshit that she is evil so she's like i'll do this just my read it's kind it's kind of an interesting reading though because he reads you get the um the voiceover of the autopsy report and they say we don't think that the feet had anything to do with the death but i suppose thinking back on it you know and maybe if we're talking about a religious devil aspect in the title of the film, Antichrist, you know, may, maybe, maybe I'm, you know, I'm just kind of thinking out loud as like a potential extension of that reading here. But if she was sort of deep in her thesis at that point, and she was sort of um, maybe in some part, even back then, however long prior it was, starting to sort of buy into the notion that maybe women are inherently evil. Did she view herself as like pure evil? Did she then view her own son as like an antichrist type of figure and then there was kind of like a rejection of him from there as well i mean i wasn't even thinking about the boy's feet before we started recording now you've said that petros i'm like oh god like the boy's evil as well boy, yeah, I'm the case wide open i'm like colombo one more thing <laughs> one more thing that's been bothering me about your son's shoes <laughs> I know this has only got left feet, left shoes. <laughs> you know, this is kind of um interesting thing because, you know, we get 
this part here um, with sort of the reveal that, um, you know, there was maybe more to the relationship with the son than we first thought. And obviously there's the ongoing thing of um, the Foe's character trying to work out the... um, uh, the fear pyramids, I think. I don't know if they call it that much in the film, but she says that um, Eden is like the second fear. And then, you know, throughout the, the film, they're trying to like, like, what's at the top of this pyramid? Like, is it um, is it nature? Is it Satan? And then he puts in like the air quotes, like, me. But then obviously that's also like his reading of her fear mm-hmm. as well. Like, that's not necessarily her fear. So is he projecting that he's afraid of her? Does he genuinely think that she is afraid of herself? Is that what her fear is? And obviously, as soon as he... I mean, I'm not going to say... I'm not going to, you know, revert to Columbo and say he's cracked the case here. But this is when, you know, we start to get to some of the most notable scenes, for better or worse, in the film, and she, like, attacks him. But, I mean, with the fear pyramids... Uh, do we do we think the fear pyramid was right? Do we think that was you know, maybe a projection of his own fears here. Because now, you know, talking about this film, I think I'm starting to second guess everything that I thought I might have a (laughs) read on here as well. I just don't know. Uh, Yeah, I'm wondering if the me is really him, you know, that he is a Mm. greatest fear and he as, you know, I guess representing the patriarchy is is woman's greatest fear, you know. Mm. But like you say, like they don't have a conversation about that. That's his... It, that's his projection and it's interesting that he chooses that maybe somewhere subconsciously he knows that it, what she's afraid of most is himself and it's i guess it's short just shortly after that that she attacks him so yeah. i mean she's attacking what she's afraid of yeah yeah so, almost like this point um and although she's screaming like oh, oh you're trying to leave me you're going to leave me i think there's definitely they um that conversation do we have that you know if we sort of accept that her fear is actually the foe's character then she's you know directly trying to attack what she is afraid of regain some of the agency that he's slowly but surely been stripping off throughout the film as well and obviously at this point this is where it leads to some um i, I mean how to even how to even how to even i mean it didn't get that much better even though i knew it was coming on the excuse the point even though i knew it was coming on the second viewing um <laughs> I mean, for the first time, because it's kind of like they're sort of like grappled to the floor and then she's taken a wooden block, smashed it into his groin and sort of knocked him out. And then she's sort of like, whilst he is unconscious, um, she masturbates him to the point that he ejects blood. Now, when I say that I recoiled with the firepower of like a, like a firearm into my chair and just went, because <laughs> I could feel it in my plums. Um, I was like, oh, Oh my god! Now, obviously, like m- my reaction to that sort of caused my other half to laugh at me. She was like, "Oh, that's funny." Um, <laughs> now, a few moments later, when she couldn't even watch the bloody screen, and I watched it get snipped off, and I was like, "Wow, you know, now we've now we've both got stuff to be traumatized by." How that, you know, that's great, isn't it? But it's it's you know a, a shocking visual of of, of the, the the blood ejaculate. To the point that later in the film, when she's got it in her top, I was like, why has she got blood in it? I was like, oh, no, that's penis blood. You know, nothing, even when you have sort of a vague awareness of some of the stuff in the film, I don't think you could really be prepared for it because the film is sort of, you know, 
qu quietly and quietly sort of building to this explosion of tension. And like, I have to open it to the room. Obviously, these scenes of like masturbating to the point of ejaculating blood, having a, um, that drill sort of pushed through his leg and locked into the grindstone when then he's like later escaping. I was like, okay, now we're in. You know, this is where people start, you know, throwing the term sort of torture porn at the film. I, again, I, I don't know if I quite see it to the torture porn extent of things. I don't know if I quite agree with that sort of description of it. Um, but I'd say for you, Brecker, would you say that this sort of borders on torture porn or, you know, these scenes? And dare I ask, you know, if you cast your mind back to the first time that you saw these as well, does it get any easier to watch? Because it didn't for me in a second viewing. <laughs> okay in answer to the the question about do i read this as torture porn i i don't um i think there's a context to what's happening i think it's important that we see this is a film of it's it's a film of heightened it's poetic it's there's a lot of heightened emotions and i think we've got to see i think it's very important that Lars shows because he's taken us on a journey with these characters and it really just puts us there so much mm -hmm. more i guess it kind of like it wakes us up a bit and it's like whoa okay oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know does it get any easier no it doesn't because it it's so i mean it's just you feel you feel it like you said yeah. and i think yeah. again it's back to that like the the blood and the ejaculation it's that's the pleasure pain thing again that's just present yeah yeah and you have the, 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 you, so you have that, and then you just totally, sometimes even I forget of, uh, you know, the genital mutilation. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Which, you know, of course, it's, we've got all those connections to like sex, guilt, etc. But yeah, like these two are just now in this like place of like just, like just pain, devastation, and sexlessness, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like a, um, a punishment exactly yeah it's like, it's like revenge on themselves for for committing that original sin like they let their child especially as, as when it comes to uh she and like her vision and it is that thing of like is and i think that's a, a really important point and I'll, I'll throw this out in a second like is she like is that the, the big like do you know what i mean who's a ghost all along reveal or, or or is this like her kind of transplanting this thing of like I fully bought into the fact that I am evil and this is how I will remember it, even though what we saw in the prologue is how things transpire. Because we see the moment he falls and she's kind of like eyes rolling back in ecstasy, whereas in this it's like she kind of witnesses it and goes, fuck it, like this, this is my time to shine. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For want of a better phrase. But yeah, Rebecca, how do you... How do you like interpret or, or has there been like changes of interpretation of that of that moment when we see her kind of re-remember or kind of recontextualize what happened that night? That's really interesting. Again, it's a really interesting point. You know, I read a lot when I was researching about how therapy can change memories, uh -huh. uh, you know, especially those almost like shamanic guided meditation things that he's doing and and encouraging her to re recall so i think that's something to consider yeah it's did she project i mean now she's in eden which having that memory and eden seems a place that does bring out like the the most like horrible side of everything i mean whose perspective are we seeing it through in the in the prologue it's i yeah. guess it's subjective but um and then we've seen it through 
entirely through her perspective so i think which one is the true one is an interesting it's a very interesting point yeah no i i think i'm 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 out on that one but I, it's interesting i like the fact that that ambiguity is there yeah 100% i think i think the kind of the literal like using it as a twist i think like that that's when like the kind of the the johnny come lately viewers who are here for the for the shocks and the frills go Oh, they, they, they leave feeling unsatisfied, right? Whereas, like, the people who are willing to kind of, like, do you know what I mean, dig through the mud, as it were, of this film, kind of go, oh, that's something that's, like, as twisted as I may seem. Like, do you know what I mean, I'm going back tomorrow night and I'm taking someone else to the cinema with me so I can have those further discussions. And that's what's kind of, that's what's beautiful. I mean, this kind of feels perverse to say, like, it's beautiful about this film, but there is... There's not just beauty in the kind of visuals, there's beauty in the grotesque, there's beauty in the fact that, yeah, it invites you to to come back again and like, do you know what I mean? As like somebody, and I think people are learning a lot about me on this episode, somebody who is very depressed a lot of the time, I can like, I can take that moment like as, as I kind of expressed earlier, it's like that is the moment where I go, oh, I, do you know what I mean? I look back on those things and go, oh yeah, that's why that relationship uh, fell apart it was me that's why that happened yeah, it, was, it was because of me it's like she's fully 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 like just kind of like bit the shit as it were and eaten the kind of bullshit sandwich that she's made for herself and like that, that's what I take away from it. I mean, that's what's beautiful do you know what I mean and like you can take away what you want Daryl you take away what you take from it and um, yeah and I think I think like to my reaction yeah it doesn't get easier watching that stuff and like well, a point I wanted to feel like thing is the fact that the grindstone as well is he is penetrated cannot move because of her and it's almost like that is like a, a physical embodiment of the kind of like weight of the patriarchy on women right is there's this kind of like we like men for centuries and i'm talking about men as like a whole just go around fuck and oppress women do you know what i mean like that, that, that to put it as as bluntly as that and he is basically he has been like he's been like his skin has been like his his being has been penetrated by that and he can't fucking move without a reminder of her i think i think yeah. that's that, that that's that's something that's kind of yeah and it, this film is nothing without that shocking stuff do you know what i mean i know there was a cut of this and like they he glibly said oh i've got the catholic cut all of that dark shit taken out or i've got the protestant <laughs> cut it's yeah. all back in and it's like this film doesn't work without all that dark shit because you need to be confronted oh, yeah. think, for this to work yeah, there's a lot of like phallic vaginal symbols throughout the film. It's like later when she takes the spade to the foxhole and she's stabbing that in, you know, again, we've got that sort of penetrative suggestion. So I, I really appreciate he's that. Like, he's like being born, right? Yeah. Like when he can't try, oh. he's like born trying to like. Dance. Yes. So, yeah, like like be, be be reborn from this thing and like yes yeah, all of it is just like fannies and willies all over the gap <laughs> well, talking about like you know in, individuals and things falling in this i found it interesting sort of thinking about it that you know the foe's character never really falls unless he's pulling charlotte's character down with him or if she is attacking him the only time he ever goes down is when she sort of takes a semblance of power back and uh you know wanks him to naught more than a bloody nub deservedly so some might say but it all it, it does all build to that 
you know, that powerful and shocking scene of her taking a pair of scissors and cutting off her clitoris, because it's kind of like, obviously she's the only one who we see carry any kind of guilt or responsibility for the death of their son, and she's crying about it, and the scene's early when she's trying to initiate sex, or she's pleasuring herself, and she's crying, and she has that those flashbacks, again, feeling the responsibility of it, so it's kind of like her, any kind of pleasure for her, or her sexual identity is completely overridden by the death of the child which for what we know the foe's character just doesn't just doesn't seem to share in and mm-hmm. it's that you know i wasn't prepared for the scene that i saw the first time around of it going of it being snipped off and i was like there are there are no safe there are no safe body parts in this movie is what i'm learning as i tight more tightly and tightly crossed my legs um <laughs> but it's 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 such an affecting and sort of powerful powerful scene to the point where you know it culminates in her being choked to death and put on that funeral pyre as well and it's it's a long scene of her being choked as well it's almost yeah. like uncomfortably long it's obviously watching that as a viewer going through just so many thoughts and emotions and thinking like Oh God! You know, you know, this is the release that this film has been sort of building towards in 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 some respects as well. And then, you know, by the time we the the pyre is ablaze, um, and we, then we sort of get to the epilogue, it's kind of like, ooh, wow, okay. It, it kind of made me think like I think I've been sort of building up my own tension watching this film and not even realizing it along with these characters as well. And it's kind of like that death being this release from all of this and i don't know if i'm even over analyzing it at this point then i was like i you know i may have to pick up the smoking habit that petros has dropped after <laughs> watching this i'm like oh a post antichrist cigarette yes please well i was I, I i was chatting to a friend of mine and i said i said like i was watching this film for the podcast and you've really picked a bad week to give up smoking haven't you like do you know what I mean? <laughs> i'll get through that film i was like is that the, ultimate, the ultimate bloody test yeah you know but and, and by the time you know we we come to you know no pun intended the climax of uh chapter four just before we get into the epilogue i mean was it was it a similar thing for you rebecca like it's just it's just kind of just like i, I mean i don't even really know how to describe it now but over than like a release was it kind of a similar thing for you as well oh was it a release i think oh, i'm trying to really consider when i first watched the film and i don't think i ever saw that this was where it was going because this doesn't yeah. tally with the man that we see. I mean, we've said he's a dick, but not a murderer. It's no, a big no. difference. <laughs> so I think actually how the film makes you believe and buy into that, because you don't go, oh, oh it, you know, it makes sense in a lot of ways. So is it a release? I mean, she's released from him. So true. <laughs> I guess yeah, that's a, yeah. a good point. Is it a release? I mean, like you said, it's that scene is so elongated and i remember reading about it and looking up you know real life choking and it apparently does take a long time so we do get you know it's not a quick death it's no you know really get that look into the camera and for me is it a release i don't think 
in one sense yes and another sense no and I think that's part of as sick as this sounds <laughs> is part of why I guess when I was talking about the film helping my mental health part of why I connected with it because it does rest in despair so much and I think I yeah. connected with it through that so I guess in another in another parallel horror universe one might think as she grows stronger well now she's like a final girl and she's gonna like beat the hell out of him and she's gonna ride out the woods and everything's gonna be great and it just isn't that you know (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i suppose that the burning kind of um harkens back and echoes um a lot of like the the witch trials and witch hunts that they reference throughout the film as well so it's kind of like even though I, i suppose she removes herself from like a, a sexual prison that she's been confined in and in the quite literal sense she removes herself from him she's almost still even in death not removed from the, the generational and decades-long persecution of women given how she ultimately meets her demise as well it's at the hands of a man she's burned as unfortunately hundreds and hundreds of women in the past have been burned as well yeah it's history repeating itself and that's yeah. very depressing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes yeah well, and I think to bring it back to that kind of like depression reading as well, it's like sometimes like you just, unfortunately people give like give in all the way to it. And it, like, do you know what I mean? It ends in their death, do you know what I mean? Or it ends in, ends in horrible places. And like, you can look at it as this kind of like, yeah, like that is her accepting the ultimate fate of, of like this kind of depression that you feel like you can never get out of. Or it's like, a step down from that where it's like she's just giving out like do you know what I mean the, these external forces and like you can look at Willem Dafoe's character as this kind of embodiment of the kind of anxieties do you know what I mean he's constantly presenting them to her what are your fears what are this like he's almost like just the voice in her brain and him him choking her is her just kind of going right yeah I guess the, all of this is fucking true like do you know what I mean it's like that and mm. it's, it's it's and it's almost like that's I don't know that weird thing of like accept accept like the acceptance you get sometimes like when you're depressed as well like when you start when you sometimes when you do admit like the actual foibles and like things that, I don't know like that that contribute to it so yeah I think I don't know I'm <laughs> I think I'm gonna go cry after this podcast guys I think I'm gonna have a drink. Big old sick. I know, and it's. I see so much to to think about and different aspects of um, readings from every direction, I think, as many times as you watch this film. And so we touched on it earlier, but sort of him being like another beautiful bookend in the epilogue. And I've read a number of readings of the epilogue as well. And I, I think for myself, you know, I, I don't know if I have like my own sort of concrete take on what the epilogue really means, but I've seen some online that I think definitely hold a lot of credence and a lot of weight and certainly in line with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about because he's got sort of the crutch and he's walking away from the cabin he's eating like the wild berries when i think in some ways you're saying oh there is some goodness to nature but then you can also read is it only the men that have access to the good parts of nature given what the film is suggesting as well and obviously this very sort of notable and again i'm using the word powerful a lot but a powerful scene of him standing atop of a hill and many many sort of faceless women approaching them like are they there to condemn him are they there to sort of forgive him um i don't really know but i see some readings that say you know um 
you know, maybe that these are the victims of gynocide, victims of uh, patriarchal oppression or heteropatriarchal oppression. These are the women of the world. Um, you know, these are the victims who, like, they're out there, but we don't know who they are. They're still faceless. And, you know, the only person whose face we see clearly is the man in this film. The only other woman that we're introduced to of note in this film is dead. And the film ends with all these questions sort of swirling around your head and um even for me as the credits were rolling i was like i was like, I, I need to go to my phone and sort of read up the ending on this like um, immediately like i'm thinking about it and it's been two days since the first viewing i viewed it again today on the day of recording and i'm still sort of thinking and querying and questioning this and for the shocking scenes that it does have you know there's deeper messages here and so much food for thought that i think as condemned as this film was at the time, this is going to be one of those works that is going to continue to be questioned and viewed and challenged um, in, in many aspects by many different people and scholars and, hey, even podcasts like this. But in, in, in terms of the epilogue, uh, did you have a reading on this, Rebecca? Do you have, you have like an idea of what the epilogue sort of means to you? I, feel, I really just feel like it is about that, what I said earlier, about that perpetual nature of the overpowering patriarchy. And also about, you mentioned a lot about nature and I guess, you know, you, you spoke about food and nourishment. And I guess, I, I think it's just inviting us to ask and inquire about the nature of ourselves as well. I think the expressions on his face are really interesting. He he seems really confused and just really just out of it. And I think... I guess there's like two ways he could go and he's got a choice, I feel. It's like mm -hmm. after this experience or just like that maybe mankind has got a choice. It's it's interesting you mentioned the, the sort of the hill. So you've got that, I guess, that height dynamic there of the woman trying to climb up the hill and he's at the top. So for me, it is, it's really, as I said before, which is why I think there's arguments that, that this film contains feminist qualities that is really that reminder that you know, we live in a patriarchal society and it's the, like you say, you know, it's the, it's the men that have the face, they have the presence, so they've got the power. Yeah, yeah it's... But it leaves you, doesn't it? It really leaves you with the, I won't say like rug pulled from under you because it's not quite like that. It's very different to that. It's almost like completely not nihilistic either. I don't, I don't even know what the word is. It's just hopeless, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's again like I'm. I'm. I'm still thinking about the film and like, I think this is something that you you said like much earlier, Rebecca. It's kind of like, um, you know, this is an ambiguous film, and there isn't just one way to read the film. There's a number of different ways, and a lot of different reading of this film all holds, you know, validity, and there's because there's so many aspects and layers to this. And even now, like, I just want to sort of go online and just read, you know, <laughs> the, the various discussions and essays that people that have on this and, like, the the, the, the videos that people are uh, putting out there about all the topics that this film is posing. I mean, and again, like, I suppose, like, for you as well, like, Petros, like, did you have, like, um, a, a read on the ending? Um or is it something you you're still sort of thinking about as well? Yeah, I'm still I'm still trying to like pass over my own thoughts on it and like what it could have been. 
all I can think is maybe we could have got answers. And this is, I feel, the next sentence to come out of my mouth, if you've uh, heard what we've discussed in this film, we would have got the answers in the video game that was supposed to come as a sequel to uh, tie an epilogue to the film. Maybe, maybe we would have got, yeah. There was a planned game, video game called Eden, which people said like you would have possibly played as Willem Dafoe's character as he goes back to the lodge and trying to figure out answers. But then like it was interesting. It was intended to be a first person psychological horror game. Come on, make that now. Make something (laughs) like really meta. I mean like like even if it's like text-based is you have to answer like some questionnaires it's like using your own fears against you oh my gosh let's do it let's do it let's 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 fuck fuck me up come on oh god an absolute button masher as your uh hole gets smashed into a pulp is that it would have been it would have been a yeah but but i don't i don't know where this where this where this goes and, and I don't know. Like, I think the fact that the women are in, like, kind of neutral light colours, like, l- l- makes me feel like it's, it's a hopeful ending and not necessarily, do you know what I mean, for, for he. For he, for he, it could be that he's joining he's joining she on that pyre. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you've, you've been eating those berries for too long and we're going to fuck you up. Like you rightfully deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, berries for everyone, I think, is 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 my is my take on this. Everyone deserves berries um, in, <laughs> in, in this movie. Um, but I mean, I think on that, um, I don't know, slightly hopeful, more hopeful note. I think we start start wrapping up the episode here today. But of course, we've still got some business to attend to, as we do at the end of all episodes of Getting to Fo You. The first and foremost is we will go around and ask in terms of Willem Dafoe's performance. Does he do deface? Um, you may have seen many a Willem deface from many a GIF or GIF if you're a monster um, <laughs> online. Um, Rebecca, did you notice a deface in Antichrist? I did. I, I I almost noticed a hint of one when he was getting frustrated at her, but no, I didn't see. I didn't recognize one. I don't think this film really calls for for that kind of um, <laughs> that kind of acting. <laughs> right, so no deface from Rebecca Petros. Any defaces of note for yourself? Well, I'm looking at one right now. There is a, there is a there is a shot that I've 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 got up online by just googling Antichrist Willem Dafoe, and there is a shot that is clearly him in the throes of passion. So it's kind of like it's it's, it's fuckface Willem Dafoe. We're calling this one fuckface. So yeah, I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> that shows off like like we said with body of evidence to kind of round out this season is the fact that Willem Dafoe has a face that looks like he fucks that's why he do- his his character doesn't work in that film uh, so yeah um let's have let's uh, that's that's a that's a Dafoe face because he looks like a man anyway who, who, who who's who's fucking he's out there fucking <laughs> that's my that's my deface. Willem's deface is a de fucking face for Petros. I think on this one, I'd probably have to err on a no for a deface for yes. me. I mean, I think I, I think if we got that kind of like almost Defoe gift face in this, then it would have taken you right out of it. So 
there's uh, some defaced restraint. So I'll say uh, two no's to one on the faces there. I like being out on an island, guys. What can I say? Uh, you, you you enjoy your island there, loser. You're lost. Get over it. Um, but the most important piece of business is our final takeaways and our final wrap-up on 2009's Antichrist. And we don't just do your typical thumbs up or thumbs down. Oh, no, no, no. As you know by now, we give our films a rating of Defriend or Defoe. Um, now, you know, I don't want to put words in any mouths. I have a suspicion of where your rating may go, Rebecca. But Defriend or Defoe on Antichrist for yourself. So on Antichrist, definitely Defriend. The best friend. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, fantastic and and obviously with you know such a high accolade of the best friend um i to ask as well what, what would be your your final takeaway your final thoughts on antichrist as well so i'm gonna be a bit cheeky and say um i guess i've sort of hinted throughout this about how this film has helped my relationship with i guess it's specifically it's anxiety i should say mm-hmm. it was something that i only noticed to what like some like I think 11 12 years after seeing it so I didn't notice at the time that that was really the reason that I felt so pulled into it so if people would like to read more about that I've got a um, an editorial with Grim Journal called Strange Sanctuary Antichrist Anxiety and Me so you can read more about my thoughts on the film there amazing fantastic plug implementation i respect it and we'll link it in the description it'll be down there as well don't you worry um and petros for yourself the friend or the foe on antichrist well as much as i would like to go for uh uh david trumbull's uh third option that he he, he posed uh, last week, which would have been the fuck uh just for the fact <laughs> that like how can you quantify like what this is but like I, th- I i think from listening and like if you've got this far and don't really know how i feel of the depression trilogy this has got to be like my second favorite obviously like nymphomaniac it's a fucking slog do you know what i mean it's like four hours or something like that uh, melancholia i think just is yeah just taps into something and just hit me at a right time and kind of like 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 yourself with this film rebecca kind of like made made my kind of pupils dilate and go oh maybe there's something in this that that, that i'm relating to on a level that i don't quite understand yeah, and, like, and like you it took me a few years to go oh yeah 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 you're anxious you got low self-esteem and you're depressed like that's what it is uh, and then um Yes, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a friend for me. Sorry, I don't know why I kind of I, I I skirted around the garden before I got to the pie in there. So yeah, it's a friend. <laughs> well, I think I think I have to make it three for three on the friends. Yeah, I think I've got to give it a friend as well. Um, even though even though certain scenes will scar me until the end of my days, I, I think from the discussion here and from reading about it and. Uh, the way the film kind of burrows itself into your mind and there's so much, you know, not just ambiguity, but there's so many talking points, there's so many reads, there's so much discussion to be had about this film. And as I said, like at the top, this is my first introduction into Von Trier as well. And I'm very interested now to explore his other works as well and sort of journey into this provocateur's line of work as well. And 
you know, I think we can't take away from the fact that the performances from like Willem and Charlotte in the, are like fucking fantastic as well. Yeah. Like it's it's so so good. It's going to stick with me. I think far after this recording, and you know, when we're into seasons future, and this is just a distant glint in the eye of podcast history, um, I'll be thinking about Antichrist um, for for quite a while. But on that note, three to friends to wrap up Antichrist, three to friends to see out season one of Getting the Foe You. Um, Rebecca McCallum, thank you so, so much for taking the time to discuss this work with us today, to discuss this and be on the episode. Uh, for the listeners, uh, where can we find you uh, on the interwebs, the socials and all that good business as well? Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, you can find me in my work on Twitter and Instagram at Pencil Pumpkin. And you can find and follow Talking Hitchcock, which is my podcast about the world and the work of my favourite director at Hitch underscore pod. Amazing stuff. So again, all the links in the description down below. And with that said, it is time to wrap things up here and lock the door on that cabin in the woods once and for all. And it's left for me to say, I've been Daryl. I've been Petros. And I've been Rebecca. And we've been getting to foe you. And there we go. That's the last episode of season 10. We've been to Eden. We've come out the other side with bloodied hogs aplenty. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, what a... What a film to end on. What a first experience. Of what a trip, movie. yeah. It's a real it's a real <laughs> kind of uh it's experiential, isn't it? And it's it's kind of one uh, that I will never forget. Since the first time I saw it to now, I, I think I think I'll be there as a, a withered old man going like Oh, I once saw a film <laughs> called Antichrist where you see a man's penis get smashed in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, since this was recorded, trying to, and without spoilers, trying to tell friends of mine about this film, it's an impossible task without turning people off of it, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, but, <laughs> you know, jokes aside, very much the same. It's it's stuck with me. It's still a film that I'm thinking about. It's a powerful movie in more ways than one. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we say... What what are, what are duo films to end on? Finding Nemo that last week, Antichrist next week. What the hell are we going to do for season two? The top it, I wonder. Tease, 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 tease. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that's a you know manipulating the old uh, listing, the marketing business there as well. Well, when it comes to news of season two, it's probably best to keep an eye on our socials, which you can find us at Defoe Pod on Twitter. Instagram, TikTok, and Freds for all mm. that goodness. And one of the episodes we want to do in the the interim, at an undisclosed time, we will be releasing a a bumper pack of episodes. Maybe one, maybe two, maybe three. Um, so keep an eye on those socials for them when they will be released. And we can say for certain, one of the episodes we will be doing is a season wrap up what we thought of all of these films where they rank for us all of the kind of data we have figured out how well have we got to know defoe how well do we know him how could we know him better what are we looking forward to what are we Mm -hmm. what, what have we gained from this experience so far all that to come and more exactly there keep an eye on the socials and if you've enjoyed the season if you've enjoyed the episodes if you're finding us for the first time and you like what you hear Go to your podcast listening platform of choice, 
give us a little de five star rating be it a friend of the podcast it helps us grow we're just a small little independent number here trying to do um you know make a little dent in that big old podcasting world and then once we you know make a little dent um we will keep on growing the defoca motion train will keep on going and it will give us the uh, impetus to keep on keeping on as well and remember in the interim before we release these bonus episodes to drop us an email at defoeupod at gmail.com with any of your questions for a mailbag episode we would like to record but it will not happen without the involvement of you the dear listener again that email mm-hmm. address is defoeupod at gmail.com and of course we couldn't wrap up the episode we couldn't wrap up the season without giving our weekly thanks to matt for throwing the pieces of this episode together and finding peace within the reigning chaos of this movie uh, he is the talking fox that has guided us uh, back to salvation uh, broken leg broken hog and all uh, thank you again matt for uh, the work that you do to make us sound like we know what we're doing i couldn't say it better myself daryl delightful <laughs> and obviously you know what we, we we're throwing all the plugs out there petros you plugged them at the start we'll just give them you know a quick wrap-up reminder at the end if you want to get in contact with us uh where's all the various little bits that you can find us as well we'll keep hammering this thing whilst we're uh got some got some downtime between seasons again again to keep up with what's happening with the interim episodes and what will be a part of the schedule for season two you can find us on twitter instagram tiktok and threads at defoe pod and you can drop us an email at defoe pod at gmail.com there we go there we have it there's all the socials you can find us on stay touch stay in touch in the interim uh, we'd love to know what our friends are to thinking so with that said it's just left for us to say thank you for listening to the episode thank you for listening to the season we will see you in the next one in the season wrap-up in the interim episodes and then we will see you in season two as we continue and oh boy are we going to continue to cover all the highs, all the lows, and all things Willem Dafoe right here on Getting Dafoe You so until then until then bye bye for now Bye-bye. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. Getting to know you, we'll start with Heaven's Gate. And we'll watch them all. Till the present day, don't, 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 don